From APM, American Public Media, this is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. This fall, we'll be launching a new documentary about historically black colleges and universities, also known as HBCUs. They were established toward the end of the Civil War in an effort to educate newly freed slaves. HBCUs proliferated throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries when many white schools refused to admit African Americans, especially in the South. But after reaching peak enrollment in the 1990s, HBCUs began to lose students to predominantly white institutions, which at some schools led to a downsizing of faculty, student services, and program offerings. Today, there are 106 colleges designated by the federal government as HBCUs. Most of them are small, rural campuses in the southeastern United States. They don't usually make much news. But our guest this week feels that in order for Americans to better understand race and inequality, the media should take a closer look at what happens at these historically black institutions. Jared Carter graduated from Morgan State University in 2003. That is a historically black college in Maryland. A few years later, Carter was working for a nonprofit and writing a blog about HBCU sports, when one day he says he woke up and realized he had to do more to get the public to notice what was happening at black colleges. So he created HBCU Digest, an online daily news blog. Jared Carter spoke recently with American Radio Works producer Samara Freemark about why he feels HBCUs serve a crucial role in higher education. They started out their discussion by talking about why some African Americans stopped encouraging their kids to go to HBCUs after the civil rights era of the 1960s and 70s. If you were somebody who went to college in the 50s and 60s, or even the 70s, and the perspective for you was, I can't go anywhere else, they won't let me in anywhere else. Why would you come out of that and not have the perspective of, I'm going to send my child to wherever they want to go, and it won't be the school where they made me go. That cannot be stressed enough because that is the thing that has really destroyed and really, really, really harmed enrollment and alumni giving um, and support of these schools. Because there was a generation of people who, who once they, they, they really constructed the black middle class and started becoming high earning and politically engaged and politically influential, they said, we're not going to be forced into sending our kids to these schools. We're going to send them to whatever school they want to go to. And that's what that's what equality is. Now, we you know, we kind of missed the boat that equality wasn't the ability for African-Americans to go into white communities. Equality, the movement for that with King and, uh, and uh, A. Philip Randolph and the work of so many of those icons was it's not that we go into where you are is that yours and mine is all the same. And that's the boat that we missed. That's that that's the part that we we just thought it was assimilation that we can go to white schools and hang out with white folks and every that that'll make it all better. It made it worse. The animosity about that made it worse. And we never really figured out we never really figured out that the argument was not for access to resources outside of our communities is resources within our communities. And so why is it so important to you to cover these schools? It has to be done because one day we're going to look up and the way HBCUs look today is going to be dramatically different. And if for no other reason than trying to remove apathy or provide information and perspective to people, at the minimum is to chronicle how did we get here. And so if in 10 years, uh, you know, when my sons are thinking about college and there's 
15 or 20 fewer HBCUs, at least we'll be able to look back and say, how did this happen? How did this happen? There'll be a record of what were the political and economic factors that took out institutions that are and have been a gateway to the American dream for black folks in this country. And more than that, economic engines in black communities. The thing that's lost on a lot of the discussion about HBCUs is like close them or merge them or, you know, do whatever to them. You're talking about institutions that bring millions and millions of dollars to underserved communities. And so what you're saying to people is not only does your school not matter, your town doesn't matter. Where you live doesn't matter. What you do doesn't matter. You just don't, you flat out don't matter. I mean, it's a strong juxtaposition against the hashtag Black Lives Matter. Uh, because in a lot of ways, when you talk about HBCUs being irrelevant and uh, unproductive and you don't have a full conversation or context about that, you're really saying they don't. Black people, black lives, black education, black uh, entrepreneurship, black empowerment, politically and otherwise, doesn't matter. So what would you say to, you know, I think some people's response to that would be all schools are open to all people now. These kids could go to their local community college or they could go to their, you know, their local state school or they could go to any school they want to or could get into. So why like why does it matter beyond the economic imperative of what they do for their their immediate communities? Why does it matter for the students? Because black students can't go just anywhere. You know, there's this that's kind of a fallacy. Um, if you're a high achieving black student, you can go anywhere. Um, if you're somebody on the margins, you can't. And America doesn't operate best of the best. It's whoever is willing to work hard can have an opportunity, not whoever is born into wealth and has resources to position themselves to be the best of the best. It's whoever wants to work hard. And HBCUs at their core are just hard work. You can have a 2.2 and can't even spell SAT. But if you get in and are willing to work hard and listen, you will come out being able to be prepared to be an elementary school principal. And there's no other school that can do that. And you have to give some credit for colleges which are willing to do what secondary schools and systems won't do, which is fix the resource question. And isn't it interesting that schools that are designed to reverse engineer everything you don't do from pre-K through 12 and fix that situation are now being regarded as failures. And the reality of it is, if you didn't have HBCUs, you'd have to find a way to make them because you would go about 10 years until you figure out, well, dang, we have we have we got a problem. We're, we're getting outpaced by China and India in the number of scientific <laughs> developments we're making. And the reason is we just don't have enough people, period, on the ground making those kind of advancements. So why would you try to wipe out schools that are trying to help you educate the poor, educate the under-resourced, educate the politically marginalized? Why would you do that? It doesn't make sense. I, I think that, you know, a lot of people who aren't familiar with HBCUs, I have had so many people, so many white people ask me, do those schools let white people in? Um, people don't understand that they were kind of the first integrated schools. <laughs> this is 2015. Who would, who would even ask that question? Are white folks allowed? <laughs> you just don't, you know, that's laughable because 
if somebody were to walk out, if I was to walk up to Johns Hopkins now and say, am I allowed in? Can I go here? That that would be laughable. But the answer in so many ways is no. No, because you haven't you haven't proven yourself academically to be there. But there's very little consideration for what makes somebody struggle or deficient on the secondary level. And what factors can I look at that would predict or at least illustrate for me an arc of potential success if I let you in? And that's what HBCUs do. Now, do they have some struggles with that? Yeah, they let a few too many people in that aren't aren't ready and they just don't have the resources for preparatory development. And that's something that I think a lot of schools are trying to address. They're trying to walk the fine line between how do we get students who may not be academically ready for the rigors of college prepared? And I got to stress the point. HBCUs are rigorous. Don't be fooled by graduation rates because these are not degree factories. Even though that's the narrative, if they were, the graduation rates would be a lot higher. They're, they're low because they don't just settle for any kind of academic performance. They give you a chance. And if you don't make the most of that chance, you got to go. But don't be fooled. HBCUs are very rigorous. Um, and even more so than a lot of predominantly white institutions, because there's this cultural nuance that you can't get anywhere else. That if you're going in there and you're not performing, those professors, that administration is going to say to you, you got, you know, you got maybe one or two chances to get this wrong. And if you continue to get it wrong, you have to leave because we don't have time for you to be here not making the most of this opportunity. We do not have time. And so the difference between a lot of HBCUs and a lot of predominantly white institutions is that PWIs are letting students in that are prepared to succeed. HBCUs are letting students in who have the desire to succeed. They may not be prepared, but they have the desire. And those who desire it will come out and be ready to compete. Those who don't, they're going to go. And I think that given the amount of students that we let in to give the opportunities, to give, to give them a shot to better their lives, you would think that support from state and federal economic resources would honor that, honor schools for doing that. You know, that they would, they would, they would want to reward schools that say, you know, you can't be Harvard. Um, you can't be Stanford, but we appreciate the fact that you're trying to make from an underserved population a competitive workforce. We support that. And hopefully the work that I'm doing and a lot of other folks are doing will eventually, if we keep chipping away at it, make that point that we're trying to make people who aren't predicted to succeed bust those predictions. That was Jarrett Carter, the creator of HBCUdigest.com, speaking with American Radio Works producer Samara Freemark. You'll hear more from Carter in our documentary, The Living Legacy, Black Colleges in the 21st Century, a program that will be available this fall. You can find a link to Jarrett Carter's work at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. There you'll find podcasts about other issues in higher ed and K-12 education, and you can browse the archive of more than 100 documentary projects. Also, please let us know what you think of our coverage, AmericanRadioWorks.org. We're on Facebook at American.RadioWorks and on Twitter at AMRadioWorks. Support for American Radio Works comes from the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, Lumina Foundation, the Spencer Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM, American Public Media.